You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, what a treat to be discussing the Middle East North Africa region and the Gulf states with Dr. Harry Hagopian our regular studio guest, because he's the best out there for discussing these things. He's going to take exception to that in a second, but still. Harry is an international lawyer and analyst on the Middle East, North Africa region and the Gulf states. And we've covered, well, this is our fourth of four, our concluding podcast. And quite a tough one, I think, Harry, because there are many tumultuous areas of the Middle East, North Africa. And we're heading into Syria, rarely out of the news these days. And we're going to talk a little bit about the plight of the Christian communities in that particular country. I almost was going to title this ISIS, Assad and the Seven Year War. (laughs) Um, But where do we start with the Christians in Syria? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for the way you described me. I do my best. I'm not the best, but I do my best. I also think that you've left the most sensitive of the four podcasts to last. I think so. What can we say about Syria after seven years of bloody wars? What we can say, or what I can say at least, the way I see it, is that here is a country that is one of the cradles of civilization in uh, the Arab world, tracing its roots all the way to the Umayyad dynasty and onward. Beautiful country, wonderful people, legendary hospitality, let alone the food that might interest you, James, that started some seven plus years ago with a protest in the south. They Co- wanted common protest to the region at the time, of course. Absolutely. It had already taken place in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, in Syria. And they rose up in uh, Dara in the south along the Jordanian border saying, we want some freedom, we want some dignity, we want some bread on the table. Because in Syria, like in many other places, there is a huge disparity in incomes, in privileges, in classes between different peoples and communities, no matter whether they are Sunni, Shia, Christian, Druze, Alawite, whatever, Kurd. And what could have happened is for the president of Syria, the inexperienced and young Bashar al-Assad, to say, okay, Let us sit together and talk and let's see what we can do. After all, he's a young man. He studied in the UK. His wife is British Syrian, born here. So it's not that he doesn't know how things work outside the country. He could have tried to just loosen up a bit the controls and give his people something more to hope for. Instead, perhaps partly because that is genetic from father to son, or perhaps also because he was frightened when he saw what happened in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, and he thought, no, I like my palace too much to leave it. He decided to, instead of negotiate and talk to these people who were, remember, peaceful at the time, he decided to sort of swat them 
with a big hammer. So the guns came out. That was the moment that the Syrian revolution started and died at the same time. It started because that is where the whole uprising, another kind of intifada in our Initial podcast, we talked about the Palestinian Intifada and what yantafid in Arabic means, which is to shake off. In this case, it was shaking off oppression. And oppression, torture, jails are phenomenal realities in Syria. Nobody can imagine it. No matter how good you are, James, and you are very much immersed in the realities of the MENA region from our conversations, but also from your work and your interests yourself, you can still not imagine what it means to find oneself in a Syrian jail. So in a sense, this is what happened. The peaceful protest was weaponized the minute the government decided to tackle it with arms, thinking, as any dictator anywhere would do, we can see it across all continents in our world, that they would then have to basically buckle under, say, okay, he's brought the guns out, we're going to stop. Quick resolution. Quick resolution. That quick resolution did not happen. Instead, the resistance stiffened. And over the years, unfortunately, that stiffening resistance bred radicalism, which then boomeranged against the uh, Syrian people. And then suddenly we saw everybody and his uncle coming and fighting their own wars on Syrian territory. So if you look at the moment, you have the Russians, you have the Iranians, you have the Americans, you have the Turks, you have the Saudis. Everybody has an agenda and everybody is fighting a proxy war in Syria. This is what is happening in Syria today. And this Syria is not one Syria. It is a Syria of pockets, of different pockets. And the recent charade of a Western reaction by knocking out three buildings, two in Homs and one in Damascus, and then saying... To degrade chemical capacities. To degrade chemical weapons, and then uh, saying that mission was accomplished, that to me is also a ludicrous oversimplification of a very complicated war. This is what has been happening in Syria. Look at the reality on the ground. Half the Syrian population is not where it's supposed to be. They're either refugees, largely in Turkey, in Lebanon, some in Jordan and other parts. Germany opened its doors for roughly under a million Syrians, and poor Chancellor Angela Merkel paid for that hospitality with votes in the recent German elections for parliament, for the Bundestag. The, the reality suddenly became one where refugees, internally displaced people, half a million people killed, all this impacted the region. And in this multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian reality that Syria is, we also have the Christians. In the first or second podcast we're doing those specials, I mentioned Aleppo, Damascus, Wadi Nasara, Hasake, Deir Zor, places where Christians are in Syria. Yeah. Those Christians also felt the impact of the war. And their leaders then 
tried to lead. And that is where I have some problems with them. What problems are they? I'll tell you what the problems are. In a recent article I wrote, I said that if I were living in biblical times and David and Goliath were fighting, I would naturally side with David against Goliath. I fight against bullies and for the weaker person. If I look at Syria and I look at the disempowered millions of Syrians who have been tortured, jailed, punished, bombed by the rulers of the country, be it the father or now the son, it's very difficult for me to basically then hail that president as a hero. Unfortunately, some communities, and that includes some Christians, have church leaders who have thought, let's think about this a little bit tactically, they probably said, let us side with the president because at the end of the day, he is going to win this war. And we want, as Christian churches, be on the right side of the, on the winning side of the argument. And therefore, they have basically gone around the world, traveled to the UK, to France, to other countries, to the United States, saying that everybody who is fighting the regime is a terrorist and you in the West should not support those terrorists. You should support the president because he's the best thing since sliced bread. And therefore, why are you doing what you're doing? That, to me, is wrong not only on moral and ethical grounds, not only because of the David versus Goliath analogy, but because when you have a dictator who is basically so brutal in suppressing any freedom or any right his people could have, that person for me is an issue. And when we as Christians who believe in justice we come and say, no, we're going to side 100% with the dictator because we would end up on the winning side. That, for me, is a huge issue, too, because not only does it show a frame of mind with which I, as a Christian, as a believer, but as a layperson, would disagree with, but also because it tarnishes a whole community that are part and parcel of your church, of your faith, and this community does not unequivocally and wholly support the president. But when you say that our church leader is saying this and that, it almost implies that the Christians, by and large, all of them with no exception, are supportive of the regime and are against all those terrorists. There are lots and lots of terrorists, lots and lots of paid mercenaries. I'm sure in, in rebel, rebel-held areas as well. Of course in rebel-held areas. Well, most of the fighting is happening in rebel-held areas, James. In the parts that are under the control of the government, there is very little fighting happening. Certainly not now when the Russians are laying down the law. But in those rebel-held areas, for instance, I'll give you an example. We just finished with the latest chapter of Ghouta, the eastern Ghouta, the, and the last one, Duma, fell, 
and there was the swap, and that was ticked off. Okay, that box we ticked it off. What is left now? What is left is Idlib in the north and the Idlib province. Now, what is interesting about Idlib province is that you have different opposition groups, some radical which hail their origins to Al-Qaeda, Jaysh al-Tahrir, and then you have the Free Syrian Army or whatever remains of it, fighting amongst each other, so much so that President Assad does not even have to worry at the moment about attacking Idlib to free it of terrorists because they're fighting amongst themselves. So there are many terrorists, Al-Qaeda, ISIL, Daesh, these are terrorist organizations, but not everybody who's opposed to the regime and who wants some right and dignity is supposed to become a terrorist. That at least is what I think the European Union, including our own UK government, believe in. So that is where I have an issue with the church leadership's position, not all of them, because I know many of them and I've had conversations with some of those. Not everybody subscribed to this viewpoint, but some do. And that is a dangerous viewpoint, not only because it gives the impression that every single person believes the same thing, but more importantly, one of those days, the guns are going to quieten down. And we are going to be post the conflict, into the building and into a new Syria, whatever that new Syria is, God alone knows at the moment because even Vladimir Putin doesn't. Then some people from those millions of Sunni Muslims who were at the receiving end of Bashar's bombs and barrel bombs and chlorine gas and sarin gas and chemical weapons, and forget the chemical weapons, it's a comedy. 99% of the people who've died from this half million Syrians who've lost their lives have died from barrel bombs and helicopters and other kinds of attacks, not from chemical weapons. But those people have long memories. They're going to come and say, aha, so the Christian communities were aligning themselves with the dictator. And that does not bode well for whoever remains in the country. Because as you yourself asked me in one of our other special edition mini podcasts now, you said, are they emigrating? Yes, a lot of those Christians, I know from the Armenian community, some of those who can have fled to Australia and Canada, those who can't have gone to the Armenian Republic in Armenia, and those who've remained have remained because either they can't leave, they don't have the means or the wherewithal, or because they refuse to leave. What applies to Armenians as Christians applies to the other Christian communities as well. And it frightens me if and when the day of reckoning arrives, because what goes round comes round politically. Now, I understand all that, and particularly when you talk about David and Goliath, the, the nature of our Christian faith in being a little bit brave about what we stand for. It's probably quite easy for us to say that from London, of course. And without playing devil's advocate too much, just to conclude, isn't it, though, even with that in mind, almost impossible for the Christians to actually, you know, they, they probably don't want to take sides, do they? And as you say, there must be many, many of them that find the spilling of blood in this volume absolutely deplorable. But, you know, they're really stuck, aren't they? You know, it's very interesting what you raised, James, there, because you have basically put your finger on it in the sense that 
At the start of the seven-year war or revolution or uprising or whatever they're calling it these days, when people used to talk to me, when I used to meet with the representatives of the Christian churches, their bishops or some of their leaders, they would say, we don't want to get involved. We disagree with all this violence. It's not a question of loving one side. It's a question of hating the other side. Well, it's a very interesting way of putting it. We don't love one side, but we hate the other side. However, it's also a question of not being involved. Well, that is fine because that used to be my advice to them. My advice to them used to be, please don't take sides. Remain neutral. If you remain neutral, nobody can really blame you. Well, everybody can, but by the very nature of everybody, then nobody does. Whereas in the sense of clearly having your church leader, and I repeat, not all of them, I'm talking just about a few of them, because there are quite a few communities there, almost expressing fealty and loyalty to the president at a time when half the country is displaced, refugee, and almost half a million dead. That is not the way to do it. Be neutral, yes. That's one thing. The other thing I would say is that it's not only what the church leaders in the country say, because the devil in me, and you could always challenge me by saying something very simple to shut me up. You can say, Harry, can they say anything else? And I would then... I think I was driving at that, yeah. Yeah, and then I would sort of look at you, James, and I would say, you know what? If the church leader is told by the regime, you have to say this or else you'll end up in jail, they bloody well will say that. So even if we agree that some of those people are saying what they don't really mean or believe, but it's a way of protecting themselves and their community. What I also do not like is when church leaders from across the world, and let's talk about the West since we're both living in the West, and it's still pre-Brexit, that when those people suddenly start pontificating from their own churches and pulpits about a reality in Syria that they know precious little about. You know what worries me about it? When I don't know something, I say I'm an idiot and I'm ignorant. When I know something, I know it because I've been there, I've seen it, I've spoken to people. But when I get a little bit, a bit of fact here and a tidbit there, and then put it together and create a fact, that is very dangerous. So for the Christians, the best thing for them to do, for us, since I'm one of those Christians as well, and we are one fellowship as far as I know, is for them to try and be as neutral as they can, and for the West to be a little bit less partisan because at the end of the day, if anybody is going to feel the consequences, it's not going to be somebody in a parish church in the home counties. It's going to be somebody living in the heart of it, in the eye of the needle in Syria. Well, you know, I think probably when you frightened me the most, or certainly on behalf of others, was when you said, look, when the guns go quiet, post-conflict Syria. We don't really know what it will look like, but there will be a time where, where it settles down into a shape, we know not what. That's possibly when problems will start for some people. So I think all I can say off the back of that is it's it's still a place that deserves and needs our daily prayers, really. What else, what else can you does. say? What it else certainly say? does. It certainly does. It needs our prayers, and with prayer comes wisdom.
And after four parts of this Middle East analysis special, that's as much wisdom as we're entitled to from you. <laughs> but thank you for providing it. It's always a pleasure to sit opposite you, Harry, and to discuss such things. I always enjoy hearing your take on it. You're willing to be upfront with it to the best of your knowledge, and I don't think we could ask for any more. So thank you once again for giving us these four Middle East analysis podcasts. And James, uh, thanks are mutual, and I can assure you that there are lots and lots of colleagues of mine whom you don't know, who have often wondered what happened to Harry and James and why have they stopped doing their regular podcast. So this is going to be fun for those people who are going to listen to them. They might disagree with some of what I've just said, but I'd be happier if they disagree than they agree because that engenders a conversation. Well, I don't think we can go as far as to claim it's a resurrection, but it's certainly a revisitation of Middle East analysis. Harry, as always, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Pleasure.